Hello, everyone. How is it going? Welcome to the 22nd episode of our News Roundup podcast going from November 15th to the 28th. This is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the tools, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. And of course, check out The Freelancers, which is a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. You can find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, check out Fortress International, which is a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore INT and their website at FortressLLC.org. And with that being said, we'll get into the podcast. And we're going to get started with the COVID-19 numbers and news. So on the 15th, we had 54 million cases. 1.31 million deaths and 34 million recoveries by the 28th. We had 62 million cases, 1.46 million deaths and 40 million recoveries. And of course, those are global numbers. At this point, there's one country in the world with over 10 million cases. That is the U.S. And there are 12 countries with over 1 million cases, being the U.S., India, Brazil, France, Russia, Spain, the U.K., Argentina, Colombia, Italy, Mexico, and Germany. And looking at the numbers for today, it looks like Poland is only 10,000 cases away from hitting 1 million. So I assume that will happen probably tomorrow, but no later than Wednesday. And there are 29 countries with less than 1,000 cases worldwide. Also, there are 26 confirmed cases of reinfection worldwide. 24 of them have recovered so far. I'm sorry, 25 of them have recovered so far, and one has passed away, which was an 89-year-old patient in the Netherlands. Of those cases, six were in India, four in the Netherlands, four in Qatar, four in Belgium, three in the U.S., one in Hong Kong, one in Sweden, one in Spain, one in Ecuador, and one in South Korea. On the 15th, after several days of record infections, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer ordered the closure of some businesses and services, including high schools, colleges, and movie theaters for at least three weeks. On the same day, Washington's Governor Jay Inslee ordered the closure of bars, restaurants, and gyms to indoor service for at least four weeks. In Italy, lockdowns were imposed in the regions of Campania and Tuscany. This brings the number of regions on lockdown in the nation to six. Nine other regions are on under strict restrictions, but not necessarily on lockdown. And lastly, on the 15th, Ukrainian health minister Maxim Stepanov tested positive for the virus. Next day on the 16th, American biotech company Moderna stated that their vaccine candidate is 94.5% effective at preventing the virus from being contracted. This is only the second company to release the results after a large-scale trial after Pfizer announced an effectiveness rate of 90% in their vaccine. It will still likely be months before either of those vaccines are widely available to the public. On the same day, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan announced a temporary ban on political rallies and gatherings of more than 300 people. Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven announced a ban on public gatherings of more than eight people. 
Buratia became the first Russian republic to lock down after closing restaurants, malls, and other places of gathering for two weeks at least. The Canadian province Nunavut closed all essential businesses and schools for at least two weeks. U.S. Congressman Sherry Bustos of Illinois and Tim Wahlberg of Michigan tested positive. And additionally, Representative Mark Pokin of Wisconsin went into isolation. And lastly, on the 16th, California Governor Gavin Newsom imposed a, quote, curfew that'll take effect. It did take effect on Saturday, the 21st. Under the new restrictions, a set curfew will be in place from 2200, 10 p.m. to 0500, 5 a.m. And non-essential businesses will be closed once again. This will affect about 94% of the state's population and will last until at least December 21st. Next day on the 17th, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon placed 11 localities, including Glasgow, on the highest level of restrictions for at least three weeks. Under these restrictions, restaurants, cafes, bars, and non-essential businesses will be closed. However, businesses that are able to operate operate takeout, excuse me, can still do so. On the same day, Pfizer announced that they have chosen Rhode Island, Texas, New Mexico, and Tennessee for their pilot vaccine delivery program. The company hopes that they will have the required two months of relevant test data needed for an emergency approval by the FDA by the end of the month. Also, Ohio Governor Mark DeWin placed his state on a curfew similar to that of California for at least three weeks. And lastly, on the 17th, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa tested positive. The 87-year-old who serves as the president pro tempore is the second oldest member of the body, just behind Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is also 87. Next day on the 18th, Minnesota's Governor Tim Walz imposed new restrictions on non-essential businesses and indoor gatherings that will last at least four weeks. And Spanish Attorney General Dolores Delgado tested positive, but at this point, she only has minor symptoms. On the 19th, Russia resumed the trial of its Sputnik V vaccine after taking a pause in October. The reason cited for the pause was a shortage of doses amid a high demand. Of the 40,000 planned volunteers for this trial, 16,000 have received both of the vaccine's doses that are needed for it to be effective. And on the 20th, U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida tested positive. He is said to be experiencing very mild symptoms. On the 21st, U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler of Illinois quarantined after one positive and one negative test result on the same day. Also, the FDA authorized the emergency use of Regeneron's Ren-CoV-2 antibody mix to treat COVID-19. The mix was given to President Trump while he was hospitalized with the virus. And on the same day, 39 soldiers with the Texas National Guard arrived in El Paso to assist with mortuary affairs due to the virus's impact on the city. By 1700 Central Standard Time on that day, at least 240 bodies were waiting at the city's morgue, waiting to be taken care of. And on the 22nd, Spain announced that it plans to start a vaccination program in January with the expectation of having over a majority of the population vaccinated within three months of that program start. Also, Japan surpassed 2,000 COVID-linked deaths, and L.A. County announced the closure of outdoor dining countywide for at least three weeks due to a surge of new infections in the area. It's worth noting that 
outdoor dining isn't really known to be a large cause of new infections and steps like this really aren't going to have an impact on limiting cases. The restrictions will go into effect. Sorry, the restrictions did go into effect on the 25th of this month. And on the 23rd, Italy surpassed 50,000 COVID-related deaths. Indonesia passed 500,000 confirmed cases. Spanish King Philippe VI went into quarantine after coming into contact with a positive case. And lastly, on the 23rd, the vaccine developed by AstraZeneca in the University of Oxford was announced to have a 90% efficacy rate when the half dose was given to 2,741 people and a 62% efficacy rate, excuse me, when a full dose was given to 8,895 people. AstraZeneca is planning to submit the data to governments around the world in an attempt to get emergency approval. So we'll see if that happens. On the 24th, French President Emmanuel Macron announced the easing of some restrictions, allowing shops to reopen with hygiene protocols in place. If the health situation improves in the country, then places like movie theaters and museums will be allowed to reopen on December 15th. Also on the same day, Singapore reached 14 days without any local infections. And on the 26th, Prince Carl Philip and Princess Sophia of Sweden both tested positive for the virus. The Netherlands passed 500,000 confirmed cases. Greece passed 2,000 virus-related deaths and extended its national lockdown until at least December 7th. And Croatia announced it will suspend weddings and closed cafes and restaurants from 1128 to 1221. Outdoor gatherings will also be limited to 25 and indoor gatherings to 10 people. On the 27th, Thailand announced it signed a deal with AstraZeneca to receive 26 million doses of the company's vaccine for 13 million people. The Philippines signed a deal with the same company to receive 2.6 million doses of its vaccine for over 1 million people. This will cover roughly 1% of its population. Malaysia signed a deal with Pfizer to get 12.8 million doses of its vaccine, and the U.S. passed 13 million confirmed cases. On the 28th, Morocco received a shipment of 1 million doses of Chinese company Sinopharm's COVID vaccine. The country has ordered a total of 10 million doses from Sinopharm and is also looking at getting other vaccines such as AstraZeneca's. On the same day, Colorado Governor Jared Polis tested positive for the virus. He is said to be in good health. Michigan passed 9,000 COVID-related deaths. Ohio passed 400,000 confirmed cases. The Canadian province, Quebec, passed 7,000 COVID-related deaths. Non-essential businesses in France reopened for the first time since October after the easing of restrictions during the nation's second lockdown. Hungary passed 200,000 confirmed cases. Ukraine passed 700,000 confirmed cases. And Myanmar extended its lockdown which was supposed to expire on November 30th until at least December 15th. Moving on to space, on the 15th, SpaceX launched its first crewed mission of the Crew Dragon spacecraft. The spacecraft carried American astronauts Michael S. Hopkins, Victor J. Glover, Shannon Walker, and Japanese astronaut Soichi Noguchi to the International Space Station. On the 23rd, China successfully launched its 
Chang'e 5 unmanned spacecraft to the, I'm sorry, from the WeChang spacecraft launch site. The mission looks to bring two kilograms of lunar soil back from the moon. And if successful, it would be the first lunar samples brought back to Earth since the Soviet Union's Lunar 24 mission in 1976. Moving on to Europe, in Switzerland on the 24th, two were wounded in a stabbing attack in the town of Lugano. The suspect is tied to jihadism, which was determined by an investigation she was a part of in 2017, and the incident is being investigated as a terrorist attack, but at this time, not many details are known. In Belarus, protests continued against President Alexander Lukashenko. On the 15th, a report by the Belarusian-based human rights group Vazana claimed that over 900 people have been arrested since the beginning of the protest movement in August. The report also accused security forces of using violent tactics such as beatings, stun grenades, and gas to disperse protesters. On the 17th, opposition leader Svetlana Tiskanuskaya claimed, I'm sorry, called on European leaders to impose more sanctions on Lukashenko. Tiskanuskaya fled to Lithuania in fear for her family's safety after the election that her and her supporters claim was fraudulently conducted. In Russia, on the 16th, President Vladimir Putin approved the building of a new Russian naval base in the port of Sudan on the coast of the Red Sea. The naval logistics base will carry out the goals of maintaining peace in the region, at least according to the Russian government. The base will be used as a resting port for troops and a space for repair, I'm sorry, to repair vessels. It will be able to house four vessels at one time, including those powered by nuclear energy, so like nuke subs. The base will be home to 300 military and civilian personnel, and this will be Russia's first permanent military base in Africa since the fall of the Soviet Union. On the 17th, the Federal Security Service, FSB, arrested a former Defense Ministry employee for selling secrets on the Russian Navy's latest weapons to the CIA. He pled guilty to the crime and was convicted of high treason and sentenced to 13 years in prison. Not a lot of details on that arrest. On the 24th, the Russian Navy claimed that its forces turned away a U.S. Navy destroyer, the USS John McCain, after the American vessel ventured two kilometers into Russia's territorial waters in the Peter the Great Gulf. The Navy, I'm sorry, the U.S. Navy offered a different version, saying that it conducted a freedom of navigation operation to challenge Russia's territorial claims, which it says are inconsistent with the Law of Sea Convention. In Turkey on the 26th, 337 people were sentenced to life in prison and 60 others were sentenced to jail terms in trials relating to the 2016 coup attempt in the country. The defendants are former Air Force pilots and civilians that are based in the Akinci Air Base that took part in the coup attempt. Additionally, 75 defendants were acquitted of their charges. In total, 251 people were killed and over 2,000 were injured in the coup attempt, and over 4,500 people have been convicted of crimes relating to that attempt. In Nagorno-Karabakh on the 17th, Armenia and Azerbaijan exchanged over 200 bodies of soldiers that were killed in the conflict in accordance with the recently signed peace deal between the two. The exchange was overseen by Russian peacekeeping troops. On the same day, the Turkish Grand National Assembly approved the deployment of the Turkish army to serve as peacekeepers in the region. It's still unclear how many troops will be sent, 
but the contingent will form a joint observation center with Russian troops that are already on the ground. According to Russian officials, Turkish troops would only operate from the joint center in Azerbaijan proper and would not venture into Nagorno-Karabakh. And lastly, on the 17th, photos surfaced online from Izeri President Ilham Aliyev's visit to the border area of Nagorno-Karabakh and Iran following the end of the war. In those photos, which were taken by forces with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an Iranian sniper can be seen with President Aliyev in the center of his crosshairs. Aliyev was completely unaware that snipers were watching him, and obviously this is a big issue for his security, so I wonder if they'll take action on that. Probably not. On the 20th, the Border Department of Russia's Federal Security Service, FSB, announced the deployment of 188 servicemen and the necessary equipment to the Armenia-Azerbaijan border to ensure security and peace in the area. There are already 2,000 soldiers from the Russian Army's 15th Separate Motorized Rifle Brigade that are deployed to Nagorno-Karabakh to serve there as a peacekeeping force. And on the 25th, the French Senate formally voted to recognize the Republic of Artsakh. As of right now, it appears unlikely that the resolution would be approved by the legislators' lower house and the president of France. But if it was, this would make France the only UN state to recognize Artsakh as an independent nation. And on the 28th, five Azeri civilians were killed by an anti-tank mine that were planted, sorry, that was planted by Armenian forces in the Fazuli district during the war. This brings the known number of civilian deaths in the war to 54 Armenians and 98 Azeris. And moving on to Asia and Australia, in Taiwan on the 18th, the Republic of China military grounded its entire fleet of F-16s, which is about 140 aircraft, which also accounts for half of the country's fighter force. After one of the planes disappeared from radar over the Pacific Ocean, search and rescue operations were underway at that point. As far as I'm aware, they were unsuccessful. And on the 22nd, the U.S. Navy Rear Admiral made an unannounced visit to Taiwan. This admiral was reported to be Rear Admiral Michael Studeman, who is the director of J-2 for the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, which serves as the command's intelligence section. The Pentagon declined to comment when asked why Studeman made the visit, and the trip garnered strong condemnation from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, of course. In India, tensions on the de facto India-Chinese border remained high as the People's Liberation Army deployed more troops to the area and increased activity as far as intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance goes, mainly through the use of drones. Talks between the two countries are still ongoing, but really haven't made much progress. And on the 27th, small-scale clashes between the Indian and Pakistani security forces in Kashmir continued with three Indian soldiers being killed by either gunfire or mortars. In Indonesia, on the 28th, militants in the province of central Sulawesi killed four Christians and burned seven buildings, including a church. Officials said that the attack was carried out by the East Indonesia Mujahideen, otherwise known as MIT, which is linked to the Islamic State. The MIT is designated as a terrorist group by Malaysia, the US, UK, South Korea, China, and the United Nations. 
The group has been fairly inactive since the killing of its leader by Indian Indonesian counterterrorism forces in 2016, and a manhunt is underway for the militants. In Australia, on the 19th, the Australian Defense Forces publicly released its Afghanistan War Crimes Report, claiming that special forces unlawfully killed 39 civilians and prisoners in 23 separate incidents in the country since 2001. Much of the report was redacted, but it does say that none of those killings took place in the heat of combat. It also details instances of soldiers planting weapons and radios on the bodies of those killed to make them seem like legitimate targets. And it also details instances of, quote, blooding, which is the initiating of junior special forces soldiers by ordering them to execute a detainee. Chief of the Defense Force General Angus Campbell and Prime Minister Scott Morrison have officially apologized to the Afghan government, and the second squadron of the Australian SAS was disbanded following the report. Moving on to the Middle East in Afghanistan on the 17th, Taliban forces assaulted a security checkpoint in Badakhshan province, killing 12 security force members and wounding 10 others. The assaulters also destroyed two military vehicles and looted equipment from the checkpoint. On the same day, the U.S. announced a partial withdrawal of troops, numbering around 2,000, which will be completed by mid-January. Once completed, it will take the number of U.S. troops in the country from 4,500 to 2,500. According to the new acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, the forces in Iraq would also be brought down to 2,500 within the same time frame. On the 21st, a rocket attack by the Islamic State killed at least eight and injured another 31 in one of Kabul's residential areas. The attack came out hours after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo met with Taliban officials in Doha, Qatar, to discuss peace negotiations. On the 22nd, separate attacks in Baglan in Nimruz provinces led to the deaths of nine security force members and injured another 18 at the hands of the Taliban. And lastly, on the 24th, dual roadside bombs killed 17 and wounded another 50 at a market in the city of Bamiyan. The attack came as a shock as Bamiyan province as a whole is considered one of the safest places in the country. No group claimed responsibility for that attack. And in Iraq on the 16th, the government hung 21 convicted murderers and terrorists at the Nazaria Central Prison. No details on their crimes were given, but they were executed under a 2005 counter-terror law. Since the declared defeat of ISIS in the country in 2017, the Iraqi government has carried out the executions of hundreds of Iraqi jihadists, along with 12 foreigners, uh, 11 of those being French and one Belgian, have also been sentenced to death, but those sentences have not been carried out yet. And on the 20th, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, released a video of their forces conducting a drone strike on a Turkish military outpost in Iraq. The PKK created a drone unit in 2016, and the PKK has been fighting an insurgency against Turkey with the goal of establishing Kurdistan as a sovereign nation for over 40 years. The video showcased the drone's munitions, which appear to be a Soviet-made VOG-7 30 millimeter grenade with the tops of water bottles taped to them in order to stabilize a grenade when dropping from the drone. And in Iran on the 18th, the Iranian government stated that it would rejoin the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka the Iran nuclear deal, if Joe Biden lifts sanctions imposed by President Trump once he is inaugurated. 
On the 26th, Australian citizen Kylie Moore Gilbert was freed from captivity in Iran in exchange for three Iranian prisoners held abroad for violating U.S. sanctions against a country. Moore Gilbert, who was in the country for a course in Islamic studies, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for espionage. The Australian government has called her release a miracle. On the 27th, Iranian chief nuclear scientist and IRGC Brigadier General Momsen Fakhrizadeh was assassinated in the city of Absard, which is about 70 kilometers from Tehran. The first vehicle in this convoy, presumably occupied by his bodyguards, hit an IED, which initiated the ambush. Then Fakhrizadeh's vehicle was sprayed with gunfire, which killed him. He was regarded as the father of Iran's nuclear program and was specifically mentioned by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in several addresses over the past few years. Iran and several countries have blamed Israel for the attack, and this comes after reports that the U.S. or Iran would soon strike Iran military in some sort of way before Inauguration Day on January 20th, 2021. The attack was followed by a meeting of the country's National Security Council with senior military leaders. The announcement of the deployment of the USS Nimitz to the Persian Gulf came after the incident as well, but that was reportedly decided on the day before and is not related to the incident. Personally, I'm not convinced, but I'll let you guys make your own judgment on that. And following the incident, Israel placed its embassies around the world on high alert. Additionally, Turkey and Qatar have condemned the killing of Fakhrizadeh. So we will see how Iran responds to that. They have held Fakhrizadeh's funeral. I believe they did that on yesterday. So any retaliation that they have planned is probably in the works as we speak. So we'll see. In Saudi Arabia on the 17th, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Abdel Ad-Jubir, said that the country, quote, reserves the right to arm itself with nuclear weapons if Iran cannot be stopped from making one, end quote. Saudi King Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Saud urged other countries to take decisive steps if Iran continues to develop its nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities. In Israel on the 21st, after a rocket is launched from Gaza towards Israel, jets and helicopters from the Air Force struck two rocket facilities, underground facilities, and a naval base of Hamas. And on the 28th, on the Israeli-Lebanon border, a suspected infiltration led to the firing of 15 flares and jets, helicopters, and drones from the Air Force flying over the area. It turned out to be two Sudanese Sudanese, excuse me, migrants attempting to illegally cross into Israel, which is apparently a fairly common event. Hezbollah will take advantage of these migrants crossing the border to test the Israeli Defense Forces response times, and this heightened response was likely due to the assassination in Iran. In Syria on the 18th, after Israeli forces discovered multiple IEDs in the buffer zone of the Golan Heights, which separates the Israeli and Syrian-held land of the region, the Israeli Air Force struck eight targets within Syria, including surface-to-air missile batteries and infrastructure housing high-level officers of the Iranian military. According to Israeli officials, the IEDs were planted by Syrian forces within the past few weeks, on the orders of the IRGC's Quds Force contingent, which is deployed to the country. According to the state news agency, Syrian Sun News, 
Three Syrian service members were killed and one were injured in the strikes. On the 20th, units of the Syrian Kurdish YPG's counter-terror forces, otherwise known as the YAT, conducted two successful raids on what they say were pro-Assad government sleeper cells in the area of Raqqa. The cells were reportedly conducting operations to disrupt peace in the area. Weapons and ammunition, as well as documents, were captured during the raids, but no other details were given. And on the 22nd, Faisal Magdad was appointed as Syria's foreign minister after the death of his predecessor, Walid Mualim. Magdad is a longtime Syrian diplomat with multiple posts under his belt, including the envoy to the United Nations and serving as the deputy foreign minister since 2006. He has staunchly denied the crackdown on protesters by the Assad government in 2011, which directly led to the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. He claims that the government is and has always been fighting terrorists. And lastly, on the 24th, a vehicle-borne IED exploded in the city of Afrin. The city has been under the control of Turkish-backed militant groups since early 2018, and there were no word on casualties. And in Lebanon, on the 21st, 69 prisoners broke out of the Bada district prison in Beirut. Officials didn't say how the prisoners were able to make it out of the facility. Five of the escapees died when their vehicle that they stole crashed into a tree while being chased by the Lebanese security forces. 19 of the prisoners have been returned to the facility and the other 45 remained at large, at least as of the 21st. And with that being said, we will take a quick break. And we will be back with Africa. And back with Africa in the Maghreb region on the 22nd, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, announced that Abu Abwada Youssef Al-Anabi will head the terror group following the killing of Abdelmalik Drogdal in June of this year. Drogdal was a leader in AQIM ever since he joined the group's predecessor organization, the Salafist Group for Preaching and Combat, the French acronym GSPC, in 1996. He was killed by French Special Forces in Mali during the Battle of Telahandak. His replacement, Al Anabi, was previously the head of AQIM's Council of Dignitaries. Don't ask me what that is because I have no idea. He has been on the U.S.'s international terror blacklist since 2015, and in 2013, he called on Muslims to retaliate for France's military intervention in Mali. And on the 27th, six farmers were killed by jihadists in the Malian village of Farabagal, making the death toll in the village at 23 since the siege of the village began two months ago by jihadists. And in Nigeria, on the 28th, Boko Haram attacked a farm in the area of Jere Borno State, killing at least 43 civilians. Authorities are currently searching for the suspects. And in Libya, on the 25th, the U.S. State Department imposed sanctions on al Qaniyat, which is a militia linked to the Libyan National Army, LNA, and its leader, Mohamed al Qani. The militia is accused of killing and torturing civilians in the city of Tarhuna, during last year's offensive by the LNA against the government of national accord.
The sanctions were originally brought to the UN Security Council by the US and Germany, but were blocked by Russia, one of the five council members with an absolute veto power. In Uganda on the 19th, protests started after the arrest of presidential candidate Bobby Wine, leading to the death of at least 19 protesters as security forces, some dressed in plain clothes, opened fire into crowds with automatic weapons. At least 350 people have been arrested since the start of the protests, and Wine, who is a popular reggae singer, made his debut in politics in 2017. He was recently certified as a presidential candidate in the upcoming election and is popular among the people, potentially posing a challenge to the 34-year-old incumbent, Yarari Museveni. And in the Democratic Republic of the Congo on the 17th, 29 bodies were found in the Virunga National Park after what appears to be a mass execution. The local government in North Kuvu province blamed the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, and also claimed that six bodies were found in a nearby village on the same day. Among those victims were some of the 1,400 men that escaped from the Bini prison last month an attack that the ADF is suspected of carrying out as well. We have covered the ADF multiple times on this podcast before, and according to UN figures, they have killed well over 1,000 civilians since the start of 2019. And on the 24th, the trial for Natabu Naturbi Sheka, which is a former commander of the Naduma Defense of Congo Militia, the NDC, concludes as he is sentenced to life in prison on the charges of rape, murder, sexual slavery, and enlisting at least 154 soldiers under the age of 15. Under his command, the militia is accused of raping almost 400 people throughout 13 villages between July 30th, 2010 and October 2nd, 2010. The militia operates in the country's east as a participant in the Kuvu province. That conflict, which began in 2004, pits the armed forces of the DRC against three main factions, including the NDC. A warrant was issued for his arrest in 2011, but he wasn't in custody until 2017 when he turned himself into UN peacekeepers. In Morocco, fighting between Morocco and the Sawari Arab Democratic Republic, SADR, continued throughout the week with clashes being reported on the 15th, 16th, and 18th. Few details into the fighting are given, but it appears that the positions of both sides are static at this moment. In Somalia on the 25th, it was reported that the weekend of the 20th to the 22nd, a CIA officer was killed in combat in the country. The officer's identity is being withheld, but it is known that he was a Navy SEAL veteran. This came as the Trump administration planned to withdraw around 600 troops from the country, presumably before Inauguration Day. U.S. forces have been in the country for years working with the Somali National Army to advise them and coordinate airstrikes in their fight against al-Shabaab. With the officer's death, a star will be added to the CIA's memorial wall in their Langley headquarters, which pays tribute to the officers that have died in the line of duty. As of September, the wall had 135 stars. In Ethiopia, the Tigray conflict between the central Ethiopian government and the local Tigray forces, led by the Tigray People's Liberation Forces, continued this week. On the 16th, federal troops took the town of Alamata, supposedly taking 10,000 prisoners. It wasn't specified who those prisoners were, however. 
ENDF troops also advanced toward the city of Humera. On the 17th, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed promised a, quote, final and crucial offensive against the TPLF after a deadline was reached on a three-day period giving to Tigray forces to surrender. He confirmed that airstrikes were being launched in the Tigray region, but denied reports of civilian casualties as a result of those strikes. On the 18th, Ethiopia's federal police announced arrest warrants had been issued for 76 officers within the army on charges of treason. The officers are accused of working with Tigray leaders and allegedly played a role in the November 4th attack on the headquarters of the Northern Command. On the 19th, federal troops took the town of Shiri Inda Selassie from the TPLF as they advanced closer to Tigray's capital of Makele. Additionally, conflicting reports surfaced over the control of the town Aksum. It's not yet clear who holds control of the town at this time. Acting Tigray president and TPLF chairman Debretsen Gerbra Michael urged all Tigrayans to take up arms, including children. So far, at least 27,000 Ethiopians have fled to Sudan to avoid the conflict. On the 19th as well, Ethiopian Army Chief of Staff and General Bukanu Jula accused Dr. Tedros Gabriesis, which is the Director General of the World Health Organization, of trying to obtain weapons for the TPLF. Dr. Tedros, who has made many headlines this year due to the pandemic, is an ethnic Tigray and a member of the TPLF. The general called for Dr. Tedros to be removed from office and called him a criminal without giving details or evidence for his claims. Dr. Tedros has denied the claims made against him and stated that he supports no side in the conflict, only peace. On the 20th, the United Nations announced that it is currently making plans for up to 200,000 Ethiopians fleeing into neighboring Sudan to avoid the war. TPLF forces reportedly launched two missiles towards Barir Dar, which is the capital of the Amhara region, but caused no damage with those strikes. An airstrike by the ENDF significantly damaged Mekele University and the TPLF lost control of the town of Adwa to federal troops. And on the 21st, ENDF troops assaulted the city of Adigrat, claiming to take the town. The TPLF confirmed a heavy bombardment took place in the city, killing nine civilians, but denied losing control of the area. Due to the internet and communication blackdown in the region, information is difficult to verify. On the 22nd, Ethiopian troops captured the town of Adigahamos, which lies about 98 kilometers from Mekele. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed gave leaders of the Tigray People's Liberation Front 72 hours to surrender before federal troops were to begin a ground offensive on the region's capital, Mekele. Abiy announced, I'm sorry, Abiy advised civilians to leave Mekele as Ethiopian forces will show, quote, no mercy. The ENDF claims that it has armor encircling the city at this point. And also at this point, over 36,000 people have fled into neighboring Sudan to avoid the fighting, with thousands more fleeing to other places in Ethiopia. On the 24th, the TPLF claimed that its forces had destroyed the 21st Mechanized Division of the Federal Army. The federal government denied these claims as a 72-hour deadline given by Prime Minister Abiy drew near. Also reports surfaced that the ENDF had 
disarmed thousands of ethnic Tigray soldiers that are assigned to its peacekeeping mission in Somalia that is deployed to fight Al-Qaeda-linked insurgents. Those soldiers are reportedly being investigated for links to the TPLF. At this point, there are more than 41,000 people that have fled into neighboring Sudan. And on the 26th, after the deadline of the 72-hour surrender period passed, the ENDF was ordered to begin a, quote, final phase operation to take Mekele. Prime Minister Abiy asked the people of the city to stay at home and stay away from military targets. On the 27th, Abiy officially announced the beginning of the assault on Mekele. And on the 28th, both the chief of the general staff and Abiy declared victory in the conflict after federal troops took full control of Mekele within 24 hours of entering the city. Abiy said that no civilians were harmed in the offensive and that 7,000 troops of the Northern Command that were held as prisoners since the beginning of the war were freed by federal forces. The TPLF vowed to continue the fight, and on the same night, the U.S. Embassy in Asmara, Eritrea, reported that at least six explosions had occurred in the city. It's not clear what those explosions were, but reports say that there were rockets targeting the city's international airport that were fired by the TPLF. And we'll finish it off with the Americas. In Guatemala on the 21st, about 10,000 protesters gathered in the Guatemalan in Guatemala City, excuse me, to protest a budget bill that included cuts to education and health care. During the course of the demonstration, Congress was stormed and partially burned as well. In Canada, on the 20th, the nation activated its first Indigenous Coast Guard Auxiliary Force in British Columbia that will work alongside the Canadian Coast Guard. The Indigenous Canadian Coast Guard Auxiliary is made up of about 50 volunteers from five First Nations tribes, otherwise known as Indian tribes here in the U.S. The Asut, the Helsok, the Ketsala, the Niga, and the Kitasu. The Auxiliary Force will work in areas where it may take the Canadian Coast Guard longer to respond, and it has already completed a number of missions before their official activation. The Auxiliary's Executive Director, Conrad Cohen, said that he hopes to later expand the program to other First Nations tribes. And lastly, on the U.S., on the 22nd, the country officially withdrew from the Treaty of Open Skies. The treaty, which had 34 participants, allowed the militaries of the signatory nations to conduct escorted aerial reconnaissance over each other's countries. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the main reason for leaving the treaty was Russia's noncompliance with the treaty's terms. Russia has been accused of blocking flights around areas such as Kaliningrad, which is separated from the mainland by the Baltics, and the Russian-Georgian border, as well as denying flights over military exercises. And that is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank everyone for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you could find us here. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. And like I said, that's all I got for you guys this week. We'll see you around.